Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm doing deep dive interviews with people working toward flourishing after addiction. People like scientific researchers, artists and writers, spiritual teachers, and more. My goal is to seek out practical lessons that can help us all work toward thriving and well-being, while still respecting the complexities and nuance of addiction and recovery. If that sounds interesting to you, check out my newsletter on Substack, where I publish announcements and show notes about these episodes, as well as other writings about addiction and recovery. Right now I'm in the middle of a series of longer-form posts about frameworks for making sense of recovery. So either look me up at carlericfisher.com, or just look me up on Substack, Rat Park with Carl Eric Fisher. For today's episode, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Erin Williams. Erin is the author and illustrator of 10 books, including What's Wrong, Personal Histories of Chronic Pain and Bad Medicine. Also, Commute, an illustrated memoir of female shame, as well as How to Take Care in the Big Activity book series, which has over 250,000 copies in print. Her writing and her art has also been featured in publications including MoMA Magazine, the Museum of Modern Art, Virginia Quarterly Review, and The Believer. She has over a decade of experience in healthcare, specifically data analysis and scientific research. She teaches illustration at Parsons School of Design and creative writing at Hunter College in New York City. So as we discuss in the episode, I had Erin on because she just released this beautiful book called What's Wrong. It is a illustrated memoir. Honestly, I should have asked her. I don't know what it's called. It's not a graphic novel because it's not a novel. It's a, a nonfiction illustrated book about her story as well as the story of several other folks and describing their experiences with medicine and psychiatry and making sense of their suffering. It's a lovely work, so absolutely check it out. But we also talk about this, this earlier book, Commute, which is an illustrated memoir of some of her experiences, especially regarding addiction. So we talk about her own recovery journey, how she entered recovery, Erin's interactions with psychiatry, including experiences of panic, trauma, receiving a somewhat sketchy diagnosis of bipolar disorder, her relationship to psychiatric medications, craft, including uh, decisions she made in writing these beautiful illustrated books, as well as what she learned from integrating other people's stories the quest for a more integrated and holistic account and commonalities across these stories. And then we talk about our current recovery practices, working with shame, working with other people, and what's fresh in her practice of recovery today. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Erin Williams. All right, I'm here with Erin Williams. Erin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Carl. Oh, come on. So we've met, we met at a really cool conference. I got exposed to your work and loved it. And now you have a new book out. I'm excited to talk about all that. But before we get to that, tell me just a bit about you and addiction and recovery. Just how do you understand addiction, your own process? How do you want to just give us an intro into your life? Sure. So. I'm in an anonymous program, <laughs> extremely anonymous program. I've been sober for just over 12 years. And I was a drinker. I mean, I was a hardcore drinker. I wasn't someone who messed around a lot with drugs. But I think of myself as always having been an addict, in a sense. 
I know now that, that you're supposed to say a person with, with substance use disorder, but I still identify as an addict. I think that even as a child, I was extremely sensitive to the world around me, took a lot of things very personally, and had a sort of intense aversion to discomfort of any kind. And so before I discovered drinking and what that could do for me, I would find other ways to sort of numb out and dissociate. But that was sort of always the goal until I got into recovery. And so how did you get into recovery? What was the experience of addiction that led you into recovery? Or what was the thing that actually made you make a change? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I was a daily drinker for many years. And my drinking had consequences from the very beginning. I talk about this in Commute, but I which is my graphic memoir about sexual assault and addiction and recovery. I was sexually assaulted when I was 15 or 16 for the first time. It was the summer I turned 16. And that occurred while I was drunk. And then I just kept drinking. I had a DUI when I was 19 and almost killed two of my friends in a car accident. Went to jail. I say all this to say that there was never a point in my sort of drinking career where the drinking didn't have really catastrophic consequences for me and my life. Mm. But in those moments, the solution to feeling ashamed, feeling just horrible guilt, all of the, the things associated with those kinds of events, the trauma, my solution was to drink more. That was sort of the solution in my family and my home. That's the only thing I really knew how to do. And then I drank in college. I was on terminal academic probation all four years of undergrad. I barely graduated. I still have to explain when I'm applying for jobs why my undergraduate GPA is a two something, which is, I have to explain that because I'm a, I teach college now. And yeah, so in my 20s, I was more of a functional alcoholic, which I heard someone say in a, in a meeting is an alcoholic with a job, but no soul. And that's really what I was. And I, and I just, I drank every day. I drank to blackout every week. I most of the time made it to work. I was able to hold, hold down a job. And the last night that I was drinking, at this point, I had quit my regular job. And I was, I'd taken a job as a prep cook in a taco shack where I could drink on the job. That was sort of <laughs> that we were. There's a saying in my program that the elevators, you get on the the alcoholic elevator and you can go down as far as you want. I was going down. I was still going down. Hmm. You can choose to get off at any time, apparently. But I was on the elevator going down. I had this job where I could drink while I was working. There was a little mini fridge behind the counter where I made and served tacos, and I would keep alcohol in there and, and drink it throughout my shift, which was day into night. And there was a morning that, or there was a, an evening that I drank at work. And then I went out to the bar next door after and got blackout drunk. Don't know how I got home. Apparently I did. Fell asleep on my couch. The, left the front door wedged wide open in my apartment in Flatbush. Apparently nothing happened. I, did, I wasn't robbed or assaulted or anything else in the night. Woke up in the morning, 
no idea where I was, how I got how I got there, why I was sleeping on my couch. And that was my last strength 12 years ago. And uh, that was, when I say I don't know why I got sober, I, I just mean that night and that morning was unexceptional. And that I had many nights and mornings that were exactly like that. And I hadn't stopped. Hmm. I'd made plenty of early morning resolutions not to drink that day, which would usually, I would take them back by late afternoon and start drinking again. But I ended up calling a friend who, who was sober for seven years. And she took me to my first recovery meeting when I was four days clean. And I don't know how I got through those four days, but I tried and stopped. I, I tried to stop drinking on my own before that. And I'd never been able to, to do it. Yeah. But well, yeah, you, you answered my question in part, because I was wondering, especially after reading Commute, it did sound an awful event, but also unexceptional in the broader mm-hmm. arc of your drinking career. The thing that mm-hmm. sounds different is calling someone. You hadn't asked That's for right. help before. So it was it was part of it also like the shame and staying hidden. It was important to you to do it on your own. Yeah. I mean, this particular friend I'd called before when I was practicing some controlled drinking. So mm-hmm. I knew she didn't drink and everybody else I knew drank like I drank. So I'd call her and say, oh, I'm working on only having two drinks a day, twice a week. And she would say, oh, okay, that sounds like a really good plan. And I would go hang out with her during those periods of controlled drinking, which never lasted. And she never passed any judgment on me. So she never said, hey, I've got this great program. And I would love to to have you come in and (laughs) raise your hand. (laughs) She never tried to convince me that I was a drunk, which which is sort of a miracle. It's a lot of self-restraint she had. Well, yeah, it sounds like th- that person was able to show up for you in the way that you needed in a non-judgmental mm-hmm. way, which is which can be rare inside or outside of traditions of mutual help recovery. It's a very difficult position and I you know, I'm even thinking about I know a lot of the listeners to this show wonder about how do I help someone, whether it's a friend mm-hmm. or a loved one? What do I yeah. actually do that's helpful? And it's it sounds all well and good to say Oh, being, you know, kind and compassionate and non-judgmental and try to give appropriate feedback, but don't be too pushy. Like it sounds like a, a sort of fantasy to a lot of people mm-hmm. I know. But that's just a very clear example of someone being able to show up for you. Yeah. I mean, because she never passed judgment on me, she felt like a safe person for me to contact. I knew that if I called her and said, Hey, I have a problem and I really need to stop, she wouldn't, yeah, she wouldn't judge me. She wouldn't make me feel worse about the position that I was in. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. She she was uh, quiet, calm, compassionate, supportive, all the things you just mentioned. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot more I want to ask about addiction and addiction to oblivion and all the rest. But getting to your more recent book, What's Wrong, you talk a fair bit more about your experiences with psychiatry. And mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about that, too, because that's an important theme and like still remains sort of under-addressed in both the popular and the professional literature, how to map the overlaps between those two domains of life and suffering. So can you just say a little more? I, I just got to keep it open-ended, but can, can you just say a little more about what your experiences with psychiatry were and how those intersected with addiction? 
Yes, I would love to talk about this. And this is why I find your work so fascinating too. So I have been diagnosed with various <laughs> various things since I was pretty young. I started having panic attacks when I was... I, I don't know when they started. They, they started when I was very young. I remember I would, I would panic and my mom would... I would ask my mom to drive me around in her car and I would try to get her lost. Mm. So I would tell her, go this way. It was a situation where I was a passenger in a car as a child and I was in control of everywhere that she would drive. And then it would be her job to try to get us home. And she always knew where we were. And somehow just being in the car, moving and having that sense of control would help me out of a panic attack. This is elementary school, middle school. I was bullied a lot as a child. I had a really difficult time in school and I had a difficult home life and an alcoholic family and so on. So anyway, panic attacks started when I was young. The first time I was, I saw a psychiatrist, it was for panic attacks and I was prescribed, I think, Ativan, which I did not abuse. I've never had a problem with abusing prescription drugs. Mostly I've been prescribed things for panic, acute panic. Mm. I was diagnosed as having depression when I was probably 15 or 16 and started on Prozac. And then when I was 18, I think, I was diagnosed as bipolar 2. And when I got the bipolar 2 diagnosis, it was the summer after, so about five months after the, the DUI, the car crash, and after my freshman year at college, where I'd done a lot of drinking and failed almost every class. And I went home to my family's house for the the summer, which did not feel like a safe place to be. And I started basically harming myself. And so my mom set me up with this psychiatrist in New York, who our friend Mary would call a big swing and dick psychiatrist. And one of these like fancy people that charges, well, I won't say that. But it was, you know what I'm saying? It was like an Upper yeah. East Side. There was like leather. I remember she had she had a mini fridge in her... This is the second time this episode I've said the word mini fridge. She had a mini fridge in her office where she kept containers of goat milk, which she wow. put in her coffee. Huh? Yeah. And she diagnosed me as bipolar too. And she put me on so many drugs. <laughs> I started taking a lot of... I started on... Lamectal, which was for the bipolar too, but then even me out on that, I would take Depakote and then I would take something like Xanax XR for the anxiety, but I would have Ativan for the acute panic and then I would have something else because I couldn't sleep and then I would take something else for depression. So I would, at this point, I was on eight or nine different medications at once. Hmm. And what wasn't addressed what I don't recall being addressed in those in those sessions was my drinking. Yeah. So at the time, I drank to blackout every night. I I drank alone. I would drink my parents' wine or liquor. I would drink it upstairs in my room by myself until I passed out. 
every mm-hmm. single night. Mm-hmm. So the <laughs> being on all of these different medications and drinking the way that I was drinking, yeah, I was. I mean, I was in terrible shape. Right. right, right. So let me ask old. you about the your relationship to the medications because you you mentioned mm-hmm. in what's wrong, at least initially, that you were scared of the pills, and mm-hmm. it, it sounded like from the book that you were scared of the lack of control over how they made you feel. And then people develop different types of relationships to their medications over time during treatment, during psychiatric mm-hmm. treatment. And it's a lot of people have conflicted relationships with their medications when they have a history of addiction or when they they have struggles with their relationships to substances. This is not in any way to suggest you should have done anything differently, but I can imagine somebody saying, oh, I don't want to go back to the big swinging dick. I reject the medications. But there was something about that experience where you did accept it, maybe maybe there was a hope there, or did you hope that you could come down on fewer than eight medications at some point? Or like, how did that fear of the medications or that relationship to the medications evolve for you? I mean, so this particular doctor, and I like that we're calling her the big swinging dick, she said to me, you're bipolar, you will never live a normal life off of medication. Mm-hmm. And it felt, so that was it, it was a dead end. I accepted that at the time because I was so miserable and I also couldn't stop drinking. So I struggled like that. Things got a little easier for me when I left my parents' house after the summer and and went back to school. It did take me another year to sort of, after another year of flailing like that, I did decide to go off of all of the medications and Mm. to try to control my drinking more myself. But I wasn't afraid of being on the thing with the bipolar like being on that particular sort of cocktail i don't know i never gave it a chance to work right mm. because you can't drink yourself into a blackout every night while you're on eight different psychiatric medications and be like oh this is how this is supposed to work like it does right i mean you're not supposed to drink on these things i actually don't remember these years of my life that I was on these drugs really at all. I I have very few memories because I think the combination of drugs and alcohol just sort of wiped my brain out. I don't know if that's a scientific or medical understanding, (laughs) Dr. Carl. That's your experience, (laughs) man. uh, That's, I mean, that's totally valid. Yeah. But I, the thing that I was afraid of was benzodiazepines in particular because I was so addicted to drinking. I was so aware of my addiction to drinking. I was really afraid of developing an addiction to prescription drugs. So I really didn't take the benzos unless I had to. And then I would take a half a pill or the smallest dose that I could only during acute panic. But I really didn't fill those particular prescriptions because I was really scared of Mm -hmm. dying. I mean, I just thought if this gets any worse, I'm going to die. Yeah. Okay. Well, I feel inclined to take that conversational strand toward the book. I mean, there's so much, I feel a little torn, frankly, because there's so much more I want to ask you just about your personal experience, including stuff that's not perhaps in the book, but it just it dovetails so nicely with what's wrong. And for people who haven't seen the book yet, which you should pick up a copy of, it starts off with what's wrong with me. That's the title of 
the first two chapters and then that recurs throughout the book at various other points so there's like the immediate version of what's wrong with me in the psychiatric sense and then that gets into the world of chronic illness as well too so i'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about one thing I was wondering from the craft level is like why you chose to start where you started with what's wrong and just overall how you frame the book, how you frame the book from that starting point of what's wrong with me. Yeah, it's a great question. And it connects to an episode of your podcast that you did with another guest, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Melissa Phoebos. So th- this book, What's Wrong, is it's the stories of different people who suffer from different interconnected illnesses and have had a a really difficult time sort of navigating the American healthcare system with chronic pain, trauma, interconnected illness, and sort of different marginalized identities. And I really wanted to tell these stories because I have my own story and it felt urgent and necessary. And I wanted to understand my own experience in community with others. But the early drafts of this book, I wasn't in. I wrote myself out because I, before that in 2019, I published my graphic memoir, Commute. And again, it's about sort of the gray area between sexual consent and assault, particularly as an alcoholic woman. And it is a book. These, these are graphic books, both of them, so that there's artwork on every page. And in Commute, I I drew 7,000 pictures of myself in my underwear having sex with horrible men. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that again. <laughs> I was just <laughs> like, okay, that's enough exposure. <laughs> Literal self-exposure. I've done enough drawing and writing about my own <laughs> pain, suffering, and trauma. Let me focus on the stories of other people. And I really didn't want to talk about myself in this book. And so I wrote these, Carl, it was a really great introduction. It was so well researched. It had so (laughs) many like $50 words in it. Like I talked about feminist standpoint theory and objectivity in medicine. And I was like, it was very masturbatory scholarship Mm. type stuff that probably no one would have wanted to read, but I thought it was great. And I sent the book to my dear friend, Melissa Thebos, who was a guest on your podcast and as a great episode. And she sent it back to me and said, no, <laughs> you have to tell your story. You have to start. Why are you writing this book? You have to let the reader in. So you have yeah, an epigraph so that says, mm-hmm. if you're silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. It's a Zora Neale, Neale Hurston quote. Is that did that come in after you put in your own story? No, it came before. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You also told me that you got some weird questions after writing Commute. That if you write a memoir of female shame with a lot of naked sketches and sexual yeah. encounters, that you'll get some you'll get some zingers of interview questions. So is, mm-hmm. is that part of it too? Just not wanting to go through that gauntlet again. No, I mean, I, I don't mind the questions. I just don't answer them. People would say, so what's your sex life like now? Or how's your marriage? You know, yeah. And I would decline. I would decline to answer those questions because they're not appropriate. 
I think that a lot of people assume, and I could ask you this question as well. I think a lot of people assume that when you write about your about trauma, about things, traumatic events in your own life, that it's cathartic. And it's for me, it really wasn't. It was like pulling apart a, a festering wound, and it was very triggering and, and re-traumatizing. It was. It took me years to get over making this book. It was yeah, it was really painful and it was really difficult. There's this great T. Karen Madden piece, which you might know, called "Against Catharsis." No, um, tell us. Which yeah, I'll send to you, but. The writing is not, she says, writing about your trauma is not cathartic for the writer. It's cathartic for the reader, which I think is true. A lot of people, small scale, a lot of people reached out to me after they read Commute and would say, I identify so much with your story. And this really helped me to understand things that have happened in the past, and which is the most rewarding part about writing a book like this. But that's not how I felt about writing it. Right. That makes sense. It's interesting because catharsis is so culturally laden, is inflected by all sorts of funny Freudian theories over the past hundred years. And Mm. even as I say that, makes me think that it's it comes out of this sort of hyper-reductionist physicalist account of somehow discharging pain. If I can discharge my pain out into the world, then I'll feel better. Almost like I'm Mm -hmm. like I'm dropping weight shoving it out of the back of the cargo plane or something. And it makes me think, so like getting back to that question about what's wrong, to me, like one register this book can be read in is working through that tendency toward reductionism. It seems to me you had a real sort of almost seductive experience with scientific reductionism that you you thought maybe that this is a a mode of human understanding that can explain my pain and solve my problems. And you sort of had to work your way out of that, open it up to different types of perspectives. Is that right? Or maybe tell us a little bit more about reductionism and how it intersected with your own life. Yeah. I mean, so I've talked a little bit about the addiction stuff and about the mental illness stuff. I've also had a lot of like chronic pain issues. And I, I think American healthcare is is really good at treating acute issues and less good about uh, at treating chronic illnesses, specifically when they're so interconnected because of the way that specialties are divided, right? So I might see a psychiatrist for my mental stuff, emotional stuff, trauma, maybe even for addiction. Although in my experience, the psychiatrists that I've had have not specialized in addiction, which is why I get prescribed benzodiazepines as a sober person, which I don't take. I see, then I have my like addiction recovery group. Then I have a gastroenterologist who I see for my digestive stuff, but, and they're all giving me different things to do, right? So I'm on Cymbalta, Lexapro, whatever the, the the medications are for my mental health. And then I'm on these other drugs that I take for the GI problems. But the GI problems are triggered by the stress and emotional and mental problems. Everything is like very interconnected. And there's no magic bullet. I see different specialists who are each treating their little piece of the pain pie. And there's no sort of holistic or integrated relief. 
And I find this is true for a lot of people who have chronic issues. The people that I talked to when I was doing interviews for this book, they they all had chronic pain. They all have different illnesses. They all have a history of trauma starting in childhood. They're all shuffling between specialists all the time, which is takes a lot of time, uh, a lot of money, and it's exhausting. So this sounds almost pat, but I I feel like you probably have some useful answers to this. So what have you learned, including looking across all these other stories and portraits that you so beautifully paint? What did you learn about holism, about like the meaningful holism and integration that medicine is not really set up to give us as its default state? I think what I've learned is that we all have different ways of taking care of ourselves and that those are really important things, practices, rituals to have in addition to trying to navigate Western medicine. For me, a lot of my healing, a lot of what I can do for myself to manage my stress and sort of manage my day-to-day life and my intense aversion to discomfort and my high level of sensitivity is is recovery-based stuff, which includes prayer and meditation practice. It includes going to recovery meetings. A lot of that is, is community, right? Which I know you've talked a lot about making phone calls, talking to others, being of service to other people, orienting my life away from my own pain, (laughs) looking Mm. inward, and instead looking outward towards what I can do to help somebody else today. That reorientation has been incredibly critical because I've always been sort of focused myopically as a default on my own suffering, which is why I write books like this. Hmm. But yeah, I think that having meetings to go to and a really strong, amazing recovery community, having prayer and meditation practices, other rituals and things help me a lot too. Having exercising regularly and getting the sun on my face every day that the sun decides to come out, which it hasn't for the last two weeks in New York. Painfully spending time with my daughter that feels really focused, where I feel focused, present, and attentive, that feels healing. So, just making sure that I preserve time for those things. What I'd rather do is binge watch quarterback on Netflix, even though I don't like football, and I don't know, stay in bed and pull the sheets over my head and not talk to anybody, totally isolate Mm. or, you know, crawl into a hole and die. Listen, you kind of put yourself down a little bit by saying you're focused on your pain. So you write books like this, but you you said even before that you found connection through making meaningful work and putting it out into the world and that you found that was the real satisfaction. It didn't do anything for you individually is what I heard to just put it down and discharge it. But when you hear from other people, that's really restorative. So I don't know, even things that appear superficially selfish can work their ways back to meaningful service. So I I think that's a beautiful example. It was a, you know, you gave a nice cataloging of your current recovery practices at 12 years, 12 years, right? Did I hear that right earlier? Mm -hmm. 
Congratulations, by the way. But that sort of stuff, especially service and orienting oneself toward others might sound intimidating to people who are earlier in their processes. And so that I wanted to ask about commute, sort of like the starting point of what's wrong is, it starts off in a lot of your own experience and including, but not limited to your own experience with addiction and psychiatry, sort of the climax of commute comes to you entering recovery, at least in part. Right. And uh, the subtitle of that book is an illustrated memoir of female shame. And in particular, one of the pages, the illustrations and the description that I found so moving was you talk about meeting a poet who helped you to write long lists of everyone who hurt you and who you had hurt and then sharing it with her. And so I'm just wondering about entering recovery and starting the recovery process and how working with shame was a part of that in those early stages where I'm assuming it wasn't really about serving others. It was about staying alive. So yeah, can you talk a little more about yeah. the, the shame piece? Beautifully put. It was definitely about staying alive in very early recovery when I was counting days, as we say. So I was between zero and three months sober. All I tried to do was not drink that day. There was nothing else. So I wasn't thinking about service at all. I was just trying to remember to bathe, eat, and not drink and go to a meeting. And when I was about between six months and a year sober, I had not really in, in my program of recovery, you're supposed to work with a sponsor, you're supposed to do the steps. And I really hadn't done those things. I was uh, a hardcore atheist. I thought the higher power stuff was bullshit. I, I thought that I was in being indoctrinated into a cult. I liked some of the people, but I also struggled a lot as many sober people do. I thought this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And everybody here is totally bizarre, weird, and I hate them. But then when I was, yeah, six months, a year sober, I started to get flashbacks. I started to remember things. Basically, most of it was a lot of shameful memories of interactions that I'd had with men when I was drinking, a lot of really sketchy sort of sexual situations that I'd been in. And I became so overwhelmed with shame. I mean, I would be hanging out with people at someone's house and I would have a flashback and it became so painful that I found a sponsor and started going through the steps. And the, the sponsor I was working with promised me that if I did steps four and five, which is what you described, reading mute, which is you make a list and then you read it to another person. So I wrote down everything that I felt shame about and I wrote my part in it and I read it to her. and. It took, I think, 10 hours to read that to her, which is, mm. it astonishes me that someone would sit there for 10 hours with another person while they just sob and tell them just all the worst things that had ever happened that they'd ever done. But she, I remember I went to her apartment and she let me sit there for 10 hours and we took a break for a sandwich at one point. We had this little pug, this little dog that made these 
horrible mouth sounds the whole time. Mm. And she just sat with me and I would tell her some horrible thing, something that felt horrible and shameful. I had never told anybody this. And she would say, okay, well, that happened to me too. Or I've done that. Um, Yeah, that sounds right. And by the time I left, well, I had a tremendous emotional hangover the next day, as they say. Um, I woke up not feeling like I'd been hit by a bus, but over the next few days, the shame started to lift. It was really miraculous. It felt like a miracle. Yeah, it just, that sort of confessional practice really relieved a lot of my shame. Mm. And uh, you were having actual flashbacks too, leading up to this in that period of time, six to 12 months after stopping drinking. It's beautifully recounted and really inspiring. And then I also wonder if you had if you had worries that it would go the other way, that it, it's this thing that people say is supposed to be good and then it would actually reactivate some trauma or actually wind up being counterproductive in any way. Yes, but I was in so much pain and discomfort that it was worth the risk, which is why we do any of this stuff that we do in recovery. Nobody wants to go to an AA meeting. You know what I'm saying? Nobody wants to stop drinking and go sit in a church basement with a bunch of sort of unwell strangers Mm. who smell like cigarettes and bad coffee. And there's nobody chooses that because it's fun. Like you do that because you're absolutely desperate. And I only did any of this stuff in recovery when it felt like I was in so much pain and somebody said, this will help. I, I finally relented. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a beautiful story. And one that I know just from having talked to you only briefly beforehand is that you really love and trust the person you went through that process with, which is really crucial and really yeah. central. Yeah. And in the way you write about it and the way you talk about it, I can feel the the sense of gratitude and release you've gotten from it. So that's really wonderful. So you, you've talked about, you talked about recovery, you talked about entering recovery, you talked about some of the components of your recovery over time, those practices from the individual to the community and all the rest. What is one place you're practicing at your edge today in terms of recovery? You don't have to necessarily even go into the actual behavior if you don't want to, if there is a behavior, but just what is the actual thing that feels fresh in terms of the way you're practicing with your recovery today? I think that through through my 12 years of sobriety, I've drifted away from my recovery program and closer towards it. And sometimes I've sort of managed myself more with therapy or more with psychiatry or more with my recovery program or through other practices. And right now I'm, I'm in a period of intense connection to my recovery program. And that's sort of what's primarily help getting me through this current period of my life. And I think really what feels fresh to me is AA post-COVID because I live in an area where there's not a lot of in-person meetings that I love, and that's all there used to be. And the Zoom meetings that I get to attend now with people who I've developed, really bonded with 
over uh, COVID and that sort of period of isolation, I've made incredible friendships and created this, or become part of this really beautiful recovery community of other people who I have a lot in common with, who are also creative types. And that feels really fresh and special to me that it's just finding these Zoom meetings that feel like collections of people from all over the country or all over the world who who I share a lot of experience with on many levels. So I go to a lot of meetings now. I really didn't for a long time. I go to five or six meetings a week now and it's totally life-saving. Yeah. That's wonderful. And I think a really useful concept to demystify too. It dovetails with something that a previous guest Vimala Sara, Valerie Mason John talked about this, about finding their recovery more in Buddhist practices and then moving to an area and then having different life changes where uh, that wasn't as available. And so they started going to more 12-step recovery meetings. And from the outside, I can see people sometimes feeling like they have to choose a pathway we have this kind mm-hmm. of like jargon saying in addiction medicine and addiction psychiatry, there are many pathways to recovery. And first off, I just had a guest who said, don't call it to call it of, which I love. Shout out to Ray Baker. Mm-hmm. But I also, I think the pathway metaphor is a little misleading sometimes. It says that you're on a path that has diverged from someplace. And mm-hmm. in reality, it's more of a dynamic interplay between all these different resources that are often available across different points in the life course. So I think it, it takes a good amount of sort of flexibility and humility and self-knowledge to be able to to do what you're describing doing. It's just turning the dials, turning the knobs of different elements of your recovery at different points of your life. Absolutely. I mean, it really, it's whatever works. Like whatever works is always the right thing to do. Whatever keeps you away from a drink or a drug. Which is what your friend said when you were struggling with your experiment and controlled drinking. Like, okay, sure, try it. Go ahead. Actually, that's what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says too. Mm -hmm. There are people who have written professional articles to try to encourage the more like kind of orthodox or um, paternalistic people in the recovery community. Hey, listen, the, the recovery literature says go try and experiment and control drinking. But a lot of times people in treatment centers are given a totally different view they're told, like, if you don't follow our directions, you will definitely fail. And yeah, completely antithetical to the spirit of that kind of like individualized respect, which could be called yeah, harm reduction, I mean, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I, I know people who were problem drinkers who now love microdosing shrooms. And that's not something that would work for me. But I totally agree with you. I think, however, you can live your best life. It sounds like such a cliche, but whatever it takes for you to be okay today is the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, Erin, I can't think of a better place to leave it than that. I want to thank you again for these beautiful works you put out into the world, not just beautifully illustrated, but also beautifully written, really touching and moving stories, not just your own, but also all the people you lovingly profile. So I think it's really rare and special to get that insight into the intersections between general medicine, psychiatric medicine, addiction, and all the rest that you cover. 
all the forms of persecution and oppression that impinge upon people's lives and their attempts to be well. So I just really want to thank you for it. It's really a beautiful work. I know it must have taken an incredible amount of effort. So I want to thank you for that. So Aaron Williams, thanks again. Thanks for your work. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. That's my episode with Aaron Williams. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to say for this episode, especially check out the show notes because I got permission to put in some of Aaron's wonderful artwork into the show notes. You know, we can talk about it until our faces turn blue, but really you have to see it for yourself. It's really striking and moving and really illustrative of some of the psychological and personal themes that come out in her work. Once again, that'll be in the show notes. Look me up on Substack, Rat Park with Carl Eric Fisher, or just find me at my website, carlericfisher.com. And finally, if you like the show, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can hit subscribe on your podcast player so the next episode automatically downloads. Or just send the episode to one other person you think would benefit and be interested. All these things really help other listeners find the show. So thanks for that. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It isn't medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, it's just me bringing you these conversations ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated. <laughs>